This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The Supreme Court ruled on Thursday that federal courts are powerless on cases involving partisan gerrymandering, the practice of drawing congressional districts with the intent of helping the party in power. Chief Justice John Roberts, writing the majority opinion, said judges are not entitled to second-guess lawmakers' judgments on districting. One of the states involved in the case is North Carolina. They had redrawn districts where Republicans have 50% of the overall vote, but won 9 of 12 congressional districts. The other state in question, Maryland, involves the 6th district, which was redrawn, to add more liberal Democrats into that area. So what impact could this ruling have? We're joined here in studio by Stephen Kimbrough, Professor of Operations, Information, and Decisions here at the Wharton School. He's a researcher on a new project here which looks at gerrymandering, and he's one of the authors of an opinion piece on the Knowledge at Wharton website titled Why We Don't Ask, Introducing the Redistricting Values Discovery Project. We're also joined on the phone by Mimi McKenzie, who is a legal director at the Public Interest Law Center. And we're going to be joined also by uh, Thomas Wolf, counsel with the Dem- Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University. Stephen, great to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Greatly appreciate it. Glad to be here. Thank you. Mimi, Thomas, great to have you with us. Thank you both. Oh, happy oh, to be here. So g- first, give us, your, give us your reaction to the, uh, to the ruling by the court, Stephen. Well, um, let me compare it to pornography. Um, The court famously said, we can't define pornography, but we sure can recognize it when we see it. And they then go on from there to say, we can also make lots of rulings about it, even though we can't define it. So we'll study the evidence carefully and decide what to do. And And yesterday, I guess, they said, well, we reject the definitions of gerrymandering given by the plaintiffs. We, um, we don't know how to define unfairness. We recognize it. It's in the opinion. It's uh, unjust and unfair. But instead of looking at the evidence, we'll go back to just looking at the evidence for pornography, and we will um, basically forbid the courts from looking at the evidence. Mimi, your thoughts? Yeah, uh, very similar. Um, certainly we are very disappointed in the, in the decision. Um, you know, the the court certainly has abdicated its responsibility to protect the fundamental right to vote. Um, I guess the only positive thing that I have to, to really say is that at least um, there is a path forward in state courts, and I think um, our challenge to gerrymandering um, in 2017 um, can can perhaps show a way forward. But you know, there, there should be protections under under the federal constitution, um, for sure. And it's a it's a it's a sad day. Tom, your thoughts? Was a stunning shoulder shrug from the Supreme Court. The court had a perfect opportunity in these cases to finally lay down a, a clear rule that took out the worst abuses in our redistricting process. There were no legitimate barriers from preventing them from doing that at this point, and they walked away nonetheless. Um, it is pretty jaw-dropping when, when you think about the ultimate consequences of this. You know, Voters around the country haven't been able to elect representative legislatures or accountable ones. Uh, the problem had gotten 
particularly severe this decade, and it looks like the court's content to uh, leave us to our own devices to send that off in, in the upcoming decade. Well, Tom, uh, Justice Elena Kagan uh, said after afterwards that gerrymandering was anti-democratic. Give us your thoughts on, on those comments. Yeah, you know, look, our Constitution was created under concepts of representation and accountability. The idea is partially that when we are electing legislatures, we're giving our power to them. The legislatures need to reflect us. When you create a, a extreme partisan gerrymander in particular, you're letting legislatures pick their uh, voters rather than the other way around, and it creates a, a slate or in cases of uh, Congress delegations that look nothing like the people they represent. If that wasn't bad enough, uh, they've also created a system where you can't vote them out, so you can't hold them accountable. In, in a system like that, you have no representation, you have no accountability. Uh, what you end up having is really not a legislature in any meaningful sense of the term. It's kind of more like a political cabal. Uh, Mimi, I, I was wondering whether or not this, because of this ruling, this does put more pressure on state legislatures in general now moving forward. Um. You know, certainly, uh, certainly, certain uh, state legislatures might respond to that pressure. Um, obviously, we have uh, state gerrymandered legislatures, um, and so they're now given carte blanche to, um, you know, to not be responsive to their voters. I mean, ger- gerrymandering is is simply rigging elections. And rigging elections is anti-democratic. It, there's just no other, there are no two ways about it. So, um, you know, there are perhaps some state legislatures that uh, will be more, re- that will respond to this in a way and, and take their um, responsibility seriously when it comes to protecting voters. I'm not, you know, I'm certainly not hopeful, for example, in the current makeup that we have in the Pennsylvania legislature. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, state constitutions um, per, you know, certainly offer um, protections, um, and state courts perhaps are now the last, uh, the last bastion here in terms of protecting the fundamental right to vote when it comes to partisan gerrymanders. Stephen, can you give us a sense uh, of the project that you've been working on here involving gerrymandering and, and, and really what you're trying to find out? Uh, sure. The, uh, so this uh, is a segue then to, well, what do we do about this? And um, as I wrote in the piece, or we wrote in our piece, is that what we're proposing uh, needs to go forward regardless of what the court decision is. So one way to think about it is this. What would be an ideal process? We want an ideal democratic uh, small-D process for coming up with um, uh, uh, redistricting plans. Well, that process would involve lots of citizen input. It would involve a, a, you know, a neutral party taking a look at this and deciding. But it would involve, above all, um, public deliberation. And we think that the, there are two key things there that have been largely absent but that can be supplied with or without the court. And the first thing is, um, as we say in the piece, um, when the legislature draws the the maps, there's no question about criterion for a good map. It's just whatever helps the legislature. So Mm -hmm. that's what's called gerrymandering. That's an abuse of – I would define it as an abuse of power in in districting. Um, If that's not going to be the case, and we should insist that it not be the case, 
then it raises a really interesting question is how do you, how do you want to decide, um, design good plans? Mm-hmm. And so I think the first thing is, and that's what the piece is about, is why don't we ask? So we're going about asking people, and we're calling for a very wide-range public discussion about what constitutes a good plan. And the second thing, to be brief, is that I think complementing that um, on the computation side, there are, there are possibilities here is that there are now algorithms out there. There are are several of them. I invented one of them uh, that allow us on computer to generate thousands, even millions, of legally valid plans for districting. Mm -hmm. We should put these up in the public domain. Everybody should throw in what they find, and these should then be deliberated on in public. I guess the question is then, how would you be able to move forward with that? Because seemingly it feels like in, in this political climate that we have right now, it's very hard to get a plan that would be beneficial to the public in general brought forward because one party or the other is going to have uh, have concerns about it. Well, we have alternate institutions. We have newspapers. We have radio, et cetera. I think you have to go with the public debate on this. Tom, your thoughts? At the Brennan Center, we've been pushing not just for the courts to step in here, but also for both voters and legislators to also try to take some control over what redistricting looks like. I mean, the fact of the matter was, even if the Supreme Court was going to give us a ruling that would have been favorable in some way for maps, it was never going to actually institute a a route-to-tip overhaul of uh, redistricting around the country. It was was always going to be left up to the people and legislatures to refine the process within those bounds. Now now we don't have outer bounds from the court, so we are thrown back on our resources uh, in the reform space. Independent redistricting commissions are a potential solution, uh, but they need to be truly independent. Uh, the the name commission itself doesn't confer any any particular uh, you know, sort of benefit. The key is that they are uh, developed properly, and so what that means can change from state to state. The California model may not be the exact uh, same model in Michigan, and those models may not be the exact same models elsewhere. But even in states where we can't get commissions, um, criteria are important. You know, criteria can be made clearer. They can be used to elevate important values like compromise and racial equity and even rank ordering them so that when the legislators sit down to draw the maps, they have a clear structure and a a decision-making process that they have to go through. All of those things could could help. What I'm hearing on the phone about promoting transparency and public participation are also key. All of these sorts of things can help build a redistricting process that is much more inclusive and participatory uh, and fair, which hopefully would lead to what we ultimately are all looking for out of our maps, which is, and not to harp on this too much, but legislatures that actually are representative of us and accountable to us. Mamie, do you think that's a possibility moving forward in the future? Well, I mean, certainly um, both in state constitutions and in state laws um, and even in court decisions, both state and federal, there are traditional criteria that have been recognized as Um, important in creating a a fair map that is um, representative. Um, Those include things like compact, contiguous, certainly equal in population because of one person, one vote, um, and maps that don't split cities and municipalities, counties unnecessarily. Um, And so that's that's kind of a, a starting point for sure. 
certainly um, the concern as we go forward um, with sophisticated technology now, it might, uh, it, in fact, it, it probably is possible now to draw maps that appear to meet all those traditional criteria, compact, contiguous, equal in population, and yet they could also be a partisan gerrymander. Um, and so a system that, um, you know, a, a transparent system that sets forth criteria, that has public input, that's certainly going to be uh, critical moving forward if we are going to have redistrict, if we're going to have maps that are um, both representative and accountable to voters. Transparency, though, Stephen, is is kind of, I think, one of the biggest problems in this process because of of where we are kind of sitting politically right now. Well, I don't know. Um, I think it is kind of transparent. It's it's just naked well, power yeah, and naked yeah. ambition. Um, so I, I think the kind of transparency we need, um, to repeat a bit, is that there should be alternatives out there in public. The, the thing is, the way the process has worked is that behind closed doors without transparency, a map is, a plan is developed, and it's put out there, and it's take it or leave it, basically, yeah. and then the, you can try to go to the courts. Um, but the thing is that the real question on the quality of the map, that in, and it gets to the, one of the issues that I think was flawed in the, uh, the litigants, was that um, of, of pumping for a single criterion, such as partisan fairness or uh, voting efficiency, et cetera. Uh, these can all be gamed. But the real question is, have we got a better map than the one the legislature put out? And I think that's what the activists should seek. They should look for multiple maps that on objective public grounds are better. And uh, the nightmare would be, as Mimi just said, that you'd look at all the criteria that anybody can think of, and you have a map that's great on, that, on every single one of them, but it's heavily partisan biased. Well, that would be awful, but I think that's unlikely, actually. I think that's unlikely. Um, and I think most people would also agree that if that partisan bias uh, is, is in abstract a bad thing. So if you could produce a map that was good on the other criteria and better on partisan bias, I would think it would have prima facie um, weight behind it. How, how important is the use uh, potentially of AI and algorithms for this process moving forward, do you think? It's extremely important. Um, this is maybe beyond things. So we, people talk about computational complexity. The number of maps that you can draw um, is it's called a sterling number of the second kind. When we did this for Philadelphia, there were only 65 wards. Put, putting those into 10 districts, the number of possibilities is 10 to the 54, which is a huge, wow. huge number. And so it's impossible to to optimize this, and you have to use artificial intelligence and heuristic algorithms to do this. But we can do it, and there's a demonstration. It, it is done. Uh, I've done it with my algorithms, and other people have done it with theirs. It's it's before us. We have this available now. Mimi, you you mentioned uh, Pennsylvania being one of the states that that uh, that is of concern. Has there ever even been the consideration to try and go down this route here in Pennsylvania? quite sure I'm following your question. Well, I, I mean, what has been the process, the, the process of redistricting here in the state of Pennsylvania has been basically what, what Stephen laid out. It's been a, a process behind closed doors. We really sure. don't have an idea. But has the idea of AI and algorithms really been been, been brought to the forefront as a possibility to, to try and use here in, in the state of Pennsylvania? I mean, certainly, 
you know, what the activists um, have been pushing for is a system that takes the map drawing out of the hands of the politicians. Um, here in Pennsylvania, we have two different ways that we draw maps. Congressional maps are drawn by the state legislature, and they're passed like a bill, like any other bill. Um, the state legislative map is actually drawn by a five-person commission, two of which are from the majority party, two of which are from the minority party, and then the fifth person, if they can't agree on who that should be, and no surprise, they never can, the fifth person is then picked by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Um, but neither of those processes um, are transparent, um, and there's still clearly a very political element to that because we elect judges so in Pennsylvania, so even that fifth person being appointed by the Supreme Court, um, there's certainly political uh, incentive there. So what the um, groups like Fair Districts Pennsylvania have been pushing for is that we move towards that type of broad-based commission that's being used, for example, in California. Um, that, so that, that's really been the focus, is who is drawing the map and how those people would be selected, as opposed to looking at uh, necessarily the tools that they would be using, for example, like AI or some of the sophistic those types of sophisticated tools. So the focus has been more on who's drawing the map. Um, and not necessarily on the the tools being used. But I think Tom, that with the with the use that we see of, of AI and algorithms in a, in a lot of areas right now, and people still do realize, as as Stephen mentioned, that that he wrote an algorithm in this, that there are humans behind those algorithms. A lot of people believe that that the path of, of using algorithms and AI as we move forward on a lot of things in our culture. Will give us some, uh, will give us a variety level of benefits. Yes, I think there are certainly benefits. I think uh, thing to keep in mind, and uh, not as if I think this is, is being what's being suggested here, but that computers completely supplant people in this process. But um, redistricting is ultimately a values laden enterprise. I, I don't buy most of what the Supreme Court's majority has said about the nature of redistricting, but there is a certain kernel of truth to it, which is this, that when you redistrict, because there are millions, if not billions, of different ways to divide people up, uh, you need to develop criteria that make the selection of one particular way of doing things legitimate. There are so many different competing objectives that it's probably impossible to optimize all of them. So yep. then the question is, how do we make trade-offs in ways that people find acceptable. Obviously, what we want to harness technology for is to find the best ways to reach um, situations that best reflect our values, but ultimately our values need to drive it, uh, not vice versa. Stephen? Yeah, I entirely agree with that. So I, I, I want to make sure that no one takes away the thing, the impression that AI is going to solve all of this. Right, right. What it can do is give us options and then allow us to impose our values to make, to make trade-offs among the options. That's the proper use of these algorithms. Right. And, and you use, yep. in, in terms of the, the, the project you're working on, in reading the article that you did, values ends up being an important component uh, of your research, correct? Uh, that is correct. And, and we're, we're saying is... Um, there's, a, there's actually a lot of criteria that are out there, a lot of different values, and, and they're not done systematically. I, I think the list is open-ended, so that list needs to be completed or filled in more. 
And, it, and also we need to actually talk to people to get a sense of the different kinds of values that, that actual people met. It's one thing to sit here in our offices and think up cool, cool, cool measures of right. plans. But we should really be talking to people, and we're, we're trying to do that, and we, we very much encourage that. And from what I understand from, from your report, the people that you spoke to kind of broke down into two different groups, correct? Uh, that's right. It surprised us. Um, so my values on redistricting would be heavily weighted towards uh, partisan fairness, um, and a lot of people I know are like that. But our job is to go out and talk to people, ask questions, and listen to what they say. And I was surprised that there's a huge hunk of people – uh, we have a small set so far. This is only a pilot study. Anybody from the IRB listening? Um, <laughs> uh, so that, um, you know, it's, pre- it's very preliminary. It's only suggestive. But I, I was surprised. There, it was quite clear, I think, that a lot of people value place more than partisanship. And so they would be willing to maintain the integrity of place. like their, Meaning what? Their, their school districts, their okay. counties, their cities. They don't want those split up. And, and they would be willing to sacrifice... Uh, partisan advantage. So they would be willing to take partisan disadvantage in a plan if they could maintain the integrity of their, you know, these important places around them, including their neighbors. So I I found that very interesting. Mimi, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that certainly um, evidence along that line uh, came through loud and clear, even in our partisan gerrymandering challenge in the Pennsylvania courts in 2017, that Communities of interest really mattered to our 18 petitioners around the Commonwealth. Hmm. Um, And when you look at the um, test, if you will, that was set forth by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, um, what they said was, you know, we're going to look at those traditional criteria, which I think reflect the place that Stephen was talking about, compactness, contiguous, not splitting cities and counties and districts and wards and things like that. And Um, what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said is that you violate the Pennsylvania Constitution if you can show that these traditional criteria were subordinated to partisanship. Tom, your thoughts? That's how they went around that. Sorry. Tom, Tom, your thoughts? One of the more interesting avenues that I think is opening up now uh, in the space of redistricting is trying to develop more thickly how to identify a community of interest and and what that is. There are likely ways to tackle this through data, and there are also likely ways to tackle this through public comment and and, structured attempts to elicit from people more qualitative indicators of what they think their community is. I think that in the past, particularly when there was the possibility at least that courts may do something here, um, there's been a lot of energy thrown into metrics that can be uh, devised in order to identify when partisan advantage has, has somehow crossed a line or when the amount of partisan advantage in a map is, is unusual vis-a-vis the existing natural baseline or the political geography of the state. But uh, unclear what the future of those things are now that, that the courts are not the main target. If what we're talking about now is moving more in the direction of increasing public participation and transparency in the redistricting process, these questions about how to elicit, identify, and implement communities of interest, uh, that that becomes a, a very interesting and I think potentially fruitful avenue. I know some of my colleagues here at the Brennan Center are trying to, to delve into that, and I'm sure other folks around the country are as well. 
so then with, with the two cases that that were brought forward then tom with with north carolina and maryland then the expectation is that realistically nothing is going to happen with those two states and and probably the pattern that has continued uh in recent years in states across the u.s we should expect that that's going to continue with uh, in terms of redistricting and and the practice of gerrymandering i think in broad strokes yes now in north carolina there are other challenges that are pending in the state courts that may also be able to bring relief to maps it's also a fact that partisanship and, and racial identity often travel hand in hand so We've seen this decade and we'll likely see next decade more challenges that are brought on uh, racial basises to challenge um, maps that are both partisan gerrymanders and racial gerrymanders. I think that the interesting places to keep an eye on are places where the gerrymanders were very aggressive and because of unusual electoral dynamics, they they may uh, break down. We haven't seen much of that this decade, but... There's always the possibility. I mean, I think that the thing that legislators need to keep in mind at this point was that in 2010 or 2011, when the maps were redrawn, uh, this concept of pulling an extreme partisan gerrymander was still a relatively new one, uh, mainly because the technology wasn't there and people didn't quite know what to do with it, sort of an insider knowledge. Now everyone knows how to game the system, so you could expect that in any state where one party controls the whole process, they are going to try to max out their seats. And so if you're currently in power and for some reason or another you think you're going to lose that power, maybe your governor gets voted out, or maybe your legislative majority is kind of teetering and may fall in a 2020 wave election, you have to start saying, do we want to be in this completely lawless land in 2021? Will we actually be advantaged by that scenario? And for anyone where that answer is no, we will not be advantaged, it's time to come to the table now and put some reforms into place to make the uh, playing field more level. Steve, your thoughts? Um, I guess I'm for heavy-duty activism and uh, PR and get and having more democracy and getting it out in public in the hopes that um, the facts will speak for themselves eventually. And I would point to um, recent work, and uh, people know about um, how – uh, a, a gay marriage is a great example of how that happened over a long period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and conversely, the um, being on the other side, gun control and the, the interpretation of the Second Amendment. We so the meanings of words change, uh, and the meanings of laws change over time based upon p- changes in society, and probably in the long term, the court just reflects what that what happens. And so I think our job is to make those changes. Tom, how, how pre- you mentioned racial gerrymandering. How prevalent is that component in this in this overall process right now? Do you think uh, it's quite prevalent? And the unfortunate thing with the court's opinion today is that it. Uh, sorry, the court's opinion yesterday. I've been living in sort of like one you know endless twenty four hour loop <laughs> of these cases. But That's okay. The, the court's opinion yesterday. Um, creates this problem, and maybe North Carolina would be a good way to practically illustrate that. In, in North Carolina, the most reliably Democratic constituency is African-American voters. And so if you are a Republican in North Carolina and you want to advantage Republicans, you can do it by disadvantaging African-American voters because you know that will inevitably um, mess with the ability of Democratic candidates to get elected. Unfortunately, now the courts created a situation where people can set out to disadvantage voters on the basis of their race, 
and then turn around and say to the court, um, we did not mean to disadvantage African Americans. We only meant to disadvantage Democrats. So what's the issue? Everyone will know as a practical matter exactly what's going on, but the law has created a loophole. Um, and so we've seen racial gerrymandering. There have been battles, particularly in Virginia, for virtually the entire decade over those maps. Uh, we've seen it also in Texas with litigation that has gone on for the whole decade. Uh, we saw it in North Carolina earlier this decade where racial gerrymander was just replaced with a partisan gerrymander. So, you know, unfortunately, I think that we now are going to see a world where legislators are going to feel very comfortable engaging in racial discrimination, knowing that they can just uh, pull a partisan excuse over it. Mimi, wasn't that also part of what was going on here in, in Pennsylvania as well? Uh Racial gerrymandering? Yes, correct. Um, well, it's a it's a it's a difficult issue as um, to to tease out. Um, you know, what happens, for example, in Philadelphia, um, where if you are packing Democrats into districts in the Philadelphia area and the Pittsburgh area, um, you are by and large also packing African American voters. Um, so the, the two often um, go hand in hand um, and can be extremely challenging to tease out. Um, you know, that said, we in 2017 did not bring a racial gerrymandering lawsuit. We brought strictly a partisan gerrymandering lawsuit. Um, you know, certainly the Public Interest Law Center is going to be paying close attention to what happens in 2021. We're going to be in a different situation than we were in 2011 because in 2011 we had one party controlling all the levers. Right. That's not the case for for 2021. Um, you know, nevertheless, there can still be um, things that can be concerning because politicians sometimes horse trade or maybe they're not creating, uh, they're not looking for partisan protection, but they're protecting incumbents. All of those things, um, you know, dilute individuals' vote and impact the, the fundamental right to vote. So Stephen? There'll be things we're paying attention to. Yeah, I'd like to ask a question because here's what occurred to me. I'm not a lawyer and so forth and see what people think. As I read I understand what the report said and read part of it and also from the news reports that the, they basically concluded that there's no more role for the federal court systems yeah. having to do with um, redistricting. If you take that literally, are they signaling that population equality among the districts is now out the window? Are they signaling that contiguity is out the window? You throw out either one of those and whoever gets control the first time has it forever. Mimi? Um. That would be a huge about face to, uh, you know, to depart from one person, one vote. Um, so I think equality of the in, in terms of the population, um, that is something that is still. Um, that was protected. the Warren Court, wasn't it? And yeah. so, you know, so, so they could be going back to 1825 if they wanted to. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, the I, I don't want to was... think of that doomsday scenario, but um, <laughs> yeah. so I, you know, that would be a huge about face to move away from one person, one vote. And I'm not reading the decision as saying that. Um, but beyond that, I guess uh, all all bets are off. Tom, what do you think? Oh yeah, you know the the holding was much narrower. They were saying that they don't have a role to play in partisan gerrymandering claims, and 
Now, there's an open question about what they would consider to be a partisan gerrymandering claim and what they wouldn't. But, um, you know, at least on its its face in terms of its holding, it's basically just saying that this one corner of election law we are not willing to uh, plant a flag in. There are huge open questions, some of which are caused by this opinion and some of which are just caused by general concerns about the Roberts court, uh, that there are a variety of things that seem like they're relatively well established that could either be um, developed in such a way to make them more harmful or less useful. Uh, there could be certain doctrines that are uh, you know, somewhat contested that may end up flipping in the wrong direction. You know, right. one, one of those has been uh, the fact that in the Arizona redistricting case from a few years ago, which upheld the legality of Arizona's um, redistricting commission, Chief Justice Roberts was uh, in the minority there. Uh, and we lost the fifth vote for that ruling. Yeah. And then, you know, so because of the change in the composition of the court, there has been some concern, for instance, that maybe independent commissions are now on the chopping block. And there are a number of different things like that, but the court hasn't gone that far uh, in, in this opinion. Great having you all with us today. Uh, Stephen, nice meeting you. Thank you for coming in. Greatly appreciate it. Mimi, Tom, thank you for your time on the phone. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you, you all. Stephen Kimbrough from here at the Wharton School, Mimi McKenzie uh, at the Public Interest Law Center, and Thomas Wolf at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.